Welcome to If You've Come This Far, the podcast that my friend Sean and I do where we try to have authentic conversations with interesting people. Really just uh, could be about a lot of things, but, but, but at the heart, it's about making life more fulfilling and impactful. Um, in this episode, um, we, we had a great conversation with someone that uh, we had only met recently, Dr. Maggie Emerson, um, who uh, we make a point of, of talking about how she lives in Omaha. She's born and bred in Omaha. Um, notable about this, though, Sean, before you introduced Maggie, um, something got screwed up on my audio. Uh, and my audio is shit. So I'm asking the listeners to show me some grace. Um, who do you think Sean is going to fire off an immediate Marco Polo to complain yeah. about this? Yeah. Todd Adams will be up your ass in two seconds. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you're an engineer, aren't you? Aren't you like, like I, you worked on a submarine. Don't you know how to make audio work? You know what? I thought I had it down. Um, I honestly, well, Hey, let, let's you're gonna like you're gonna point fingers like you you didn't you didn't say anything during the conversation right no, I, like, thought, I thought it went well right no it yeah. sounded great yeah i think uh i don't know if my blue yeti maybe if i if i complain about blue yeti on our on our acclaimed podcast blue yeti will send me something better than what i got in front of me really should we should we be going after our producer though i mean who does the producing on oh this show? here we go here we no, go. no no I do the producing. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> right. We don't have a producer yet. Maybe we should let Todd produce since he's always bitching and moaning. <laughs> he is about the quality. He, you know what? Though we talk like we, we always appreciate when friends give us feedback, and I truly yeah. do appreciate Todd's feedback. Um, uh, I but you know what? You know I'm making the same mistake over and over again. So that's that's uh, mm. I, I deserve some tough love. Anyway. Oh, well, you know, life goes on, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, and as long as, you know, we can still hear your voice. And so, and and you know what? More importantly, it's the listener can hear Maggie because she's awesome. Maggie, it comes through loud and clear, both in sort of audio quality and the quality of, of what she has to say about mental health. Why don't, why don't you introduce uh Dr. Mark so, Maggie Emerson. Yeah, yeah. So, so Maggie is an assistant professor and a board certified advanced practice psychiatric nurse practitioner, um, focused on integrated care. Um, one thing, Maggie, Maggie and I are not related, by the way, Emerson. Not that we know of, um, but uh, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted Maggie on. Uh, was I discovered that she uh, had participated in the creation of a database that reviews all the mental health apps that have been released or some somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 plus that have been released over the last few years. And um, I was just pers personally curious about that whole space. I mean, all these apps are being released that are supposed to help people with um, their mental health situation, how good are they? How do we know? Because they're not going through any kind of formal process. I mean, it's it's the Wild West. It's venture capital. And here's this database that that's out there. And um, I thought it was really cool. And, and so not only does Maggie talk about that, not only do we talk about that with her, but but we get into a lot of, I think, good conversation about um, mental health and mental wellness and mental care um, 
in our country right now. Yeah, we, we've done, um, I, I haven't counted, but we've done a handful of episodes where the the focus was on mental health. Um, we talked to Alexa James at NAMI Chicago, mm-hmm. D- Dave Dunn about eating disorders and others. Um, and um, Maggie brings us up at one point in the conversation that it's, 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 um, it's energizing for her and people in her field that that the conversation has been elevated and continues to be more and more elevated as opposed to it having historically been, oh, well, you can go to your doctor for one thing, but everything else or whatever is, is mental health and the two shall never meet. Right. So, um, and it's, it, it, and you know, that database work that she and her partner at Harvard are, are working on. Um, I mean, they're not doing the reviews. I think it's, it's genius, I think the fact that they're just indexing these things that are proliferating like mad um, is really important work in and of itself. Um, because I mean, some of that, I mean, dude, this is 2022 snake oil in a lot of cases. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. So it's uh, it's, it's good. And and there is no, there's no real regulation of this stuff. Um, and, uh, and it's just really um I was psyched when you when you sent me that thing. I'm like, wow, why, how come no one thought of this before? Because this is a, a must in this day and age. So anyway. Um, yeah, I, just two things. I, let me add that um, John Torres is uh, Maggie's partner in the creation of the database. And uh, also that Maggie is at, uh, you mentioned Omaha. Maggie's at the University of Nebraska Medical Centers where she practices. Yeah, she is. Uh, she was. She was uh, uh, really a delight and so yes. smart. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I, I sort of monopolized part of the conversation uh, because I have a, a daughter who's interested in a career, sort of in that field or tangentially in that field. So um, we talk a little bit about um, the need for talent in the mental health space. Um, so um, all good things, hopefully. Right. Um, this will, will be interesting to people and we'll land with some people. Well, and just one other point, you monopolizing the conversation, there's nothing new about that. FYI, just yeah, you know, but, as yeah, you bring but it up. No, the only thing new about it is that I, I was muffled when I did it. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought we said that wasn't new either. <laughs> that went away for a while, but apparently it's yeah. back. Holy shit. Well, Hey, again, the good thing is everybody can hear Maggie and that's what it's all about. There so, you go. There you here go. We go. Let's do it. Maggie, I should have warned you that I was hitting the record button, but I assume you knew what you were getting yourself into here. Yeah, I got it. She may, <laughs> she may, she may, may not know. So <laughs> she, she didn't, she didn't sign the paperwork, Sean. No, she didn't. But there was paperwork. Oh, yeah, <laughs> she did. Right. But, but Maggie did ask me, she's like, I checked in with her yesterday saying, okay, are we good to go? And she's like, well, you were going to send some questions, weren't you? And I'm like, ah, yeah. <laughs> so I got you some stuff this morning. Yeah, you did. To help. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So well, we like we can't promise we're going to stay on script though, right? You didn't. No, make we're not. Foolish. No, okay. I told. No, I think I. I think writing. I told you that. Good. I think I told her that I would do that, but I can't promise her anything. Um, <laughs> so let me. So let me start and set this up um, for the listeners. So I. It really kind of starts with I get a uh, morning email that it's called term sheet that. Um, among other things, reviews venture funding that goes into new startups. And um, what I saw over the years, the last few years, are 
tens of hundreds of millions of dollars going into not only digital health, but mental health apps in particular. And it, and it just, and I, and I actually kept a file for myself of all these companies that kept coming up and, and what were they doing? And, and it occurred to me, you know, what's the quality of these apps, all the money being poured into it? How do you know what's good, what's not good? And, you know, if you, if you follow the money and there's so many of them, ultimately some of them can't be great. And then I came upon an article in Psych, which is an online newsletter uh, by Maggie and John Torres, is it? Yep. Um, and they have collaborated to create a database that basically evaluate, I'm going to say right now, evaluates the mental health apps, at least. I think there's, last check, there was 600 in the database, um, which I just think is invaluable. So, I, so I'm really looking at exploring this with you. Uh, just an invaluable resource that occurs to me, you know, how many how many people actually even know about it and have access to it? And we'll, and we'll talk through all of that. Yeah. So that's, so that's the setup. And I, and I, and, and we do Maggie, we do an intro at the beginning. And so we'll talk all about you and who you are at the beginning. So, um, so you don't have to go through that, but um, maybe start with, you know, from your perspective, where I, I read almost every day about what is being called an epidemic in, 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 mental health or mental wellness in the United States. Does that jive with you? Are we, is it an epidemic of a, a mental health crisis in the United States from your perspective? Let's start there. So I think the, you know, for us working in psychiatry, this is nothing like this isn't new news for us. We have had a shortage of providers and resources um, over the course of my professional career, I tell the students that I teach that there is an unlikely case that you will ever uh, have to really search hard for a job. There is always going to be a need out there. And in our lifetime, I don't think we're ever going to exceed um, our ability to, to really provide those resources because mental health has been around for a long time, but we've never really had, I think, that interest for people to pursue and be a part of, of that treatment. It's kind of like this, you know, secondary type of medicine, you either work in psychiatry or you work in medicine. And we're now seeing that um, you can't separate those two things. And you really have to have psychiatrists who understand how to provide medical care. And you have to have medical providers understand that mental health is part of what they're seeing and dealing with. So um, I think everybody else that's not in psychiatry or behavioral medicine is now seeing that this is not something that we can avoid because it's affecting people that are higher functioning. It's affecting organizations and their ability to sort of retain workers or get them back to work. So I think because we're affecting, it's affecting people that are more affluent in the, in the culture and the community that we're seeing that the stigma with that maybe it's not so much of a, um, a person that's dealing with homelessness or somebody that's in the community mental health center. It could be anybody. It could be your neighbor. It could be, you know, your mom or dad or sibling. So, um, that's kind of, I think, what's nice about what's been happening is the awareness to yeah. it could be somebody you care about um, yeah. and that empathy that happens when you have that identification. Mm -hmm. Well, a quick, um, a quick follow up. Uh, and Sean, you may have one as well. But so, Maggie, I have, a, I have two daughters, one of whom is a 17 year old senior who um, has had her own sort of like um, mental health issues. And she's very interested in becoming a psych nurse. 
Um, I happen to work in the education space and have dealt for a long time with a shortage of teachers and an inability to attract people to that profession for lots of reasons, right? Like, yeah. A, you can't build wealth. Um, not only can you not build wealth, but it's hard to, you have a hard time digging your way out of the debt that you, that you, um, that you acquire. My, my sense recently as I'm learning more about this is that there's a similar, um, challenge in the healthcare space and maybe specifically in your field um, is, and you just said that you tell your students that you'll always be able to find a job, which suggests to me that there's more demand than there is supply. Mm -hmm. Is that, uh, is that what you're seeing? Are you all having a hard time getting folks into your program? So there's more interest because I think that there's an awareness to you're not going to struggle finding employment in comparison to some of the other like family practice, you are competing for positions, mm -hmm. um, whereas psychiatry, there's definitely some availability. I think also you're seeing this sort of social media influence where people are really identifying that this is an important issue. Having depression and anxiety isn't this segregated thing. It is a part of, of what people can experience. And so I think, again, it's sort of that empathic response. I also think that um, it's kind of a uh, stimulating for folks to realize that they're a commodity and mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. they can negotiate salaries. They can really start to sell the idea that, hey, I, I can provide resources for a discipline that doesn't have enough of us. Um, and so I think being able to negotiate some of that stuff is, is definitely um, worthwhile. But before this all started to happen, um, I can't say that there was as much incentive for organizations to really you know, look at providing more compensation for psychiatric providers. Um, it was sort of like, well, we'll just put you in this other little separate building and let you do your thing. And uh, now they're seeing that it's such an integral part and it helps um, really all the other providers, if you have that support there, to function better because we're providing that support that they end up defaulting to having mm. to do, but we're there to help them. So well, so so then this proliferation of, of of technology and and smartphone apps in particular, how much of that is is a race to meet the demand? How much of it is money grab? <laughs> uh, honestly, and 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 how much of it is just sort of natural evolution? So I think that John and I, we both have had this kind of conversation before we ever started. Um, to like even develop a, a collegial relationship that we were both interested in using technology to meet the demands that were there prior to COVID. So we both were looking at these populations. He was looking at folks with severe and persistent mental illness or like early onset psychosis. And I was looking at folks with racial disparities and um, that they aren't getting their needs met. They can't afford like a bus ticket to get there. So how do mm -hmm. we leverage the idea that we know that there's a need, but we can't just ask them to come back to the clinic regularly. And, you know, if they can't afford the bus ticket or, you know, daycare. So we were both looking at the use of technology to meet these needs prior to, you know, the pandemic. And now everybody is like, oh, wait, we have to care about people and have this equitable distribution of services. And, and how do we do that? Oh, we should, you know, use a smartphone. Well, John and I, having done this for, you know, several years now, know that it's not just about like, let's write a, a an app and 
you know, send out a smartphone and put an app on it, it's just going to solve all the world's problems. It is about that relationship using the technology as an augmentation, as opposed to just a prescription um, and supporting that person to know that they can utilize that app in a customized way. So I see a lot of people wanting to create, you know, their own app or, you know, they're going to come up with the latest and greatest thing. Well, you and I are probably not going to agree on what I like about an app versus what you're going to like about an app. And what I want to do with my app is probably not going to be what you want to do with that app. So I sort of have this feeling that there isn't a one size fits all. And if it had every single thing, it would be so overwhelming Mm -hmm. that people would just be so off put by it. Um, So I think there are a lot of people that are getting into it for financial, you know, thinking that like, I am going to, you know, hit the bank with with this, Mm -hmm. but don't bring researchers and clinicians to the team. And then I think you have people that are trying to explore how apps work in a research world that is not the same as when you're actually sending patients home in real life with these apps and what are the logistics of it? Because it isn't just, you know, like I said, put the app on the phone and say, you know, depression is going to be cured. It has to be a team approach with the apps and with the treatment and everybody kind of being on board. So in your experience, how well is that being done today? Well, um, it depends on the clinic uh, and depends on providers. So if there's not time allocated to a a clinic structure to really support digital skills for providers and patients, it's a struggle. Um, It's one thing to put an app on a phone. It's another thing to like teach them how to navigate the app and how to um, utilize some of the features and not to overwhelm them. And how do we take the data that they're putting into the app and bring that back to care? Because providers, I think, are bogged down with the amount of data that they can collect from the EHR and from patients coming in and all these screening tools and everything that how do we make the best use of the data that we're asking patients to participate in, you know, creating for us and how do we make it meaningful? So mm-hmm. we are still understand, trying to understand the best approach for that. Um, and so I think starting small and not focusing on just one specific app, but understanding the process is where um, a lot of us are now. Cause in the macro, I would think the idea that, that we've got, a set of tools that we can spread to people that makes them more accessible to some kind of support is, is a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in a mac, at a macro level, unless those tools are crappy, mm-hmm. then, 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 then is that even a good thing or can that potentially exacerbate the problem? Yeah. So we've looked at apps that have resources that are um, completely inaccurate um, or if we challenge, there are some, chat bots that they have that I will challenge them a little bit and say, you know, I'm, I'm suicidal when I'm running through them and they will have completely inappropriate responses. There are education uh, materials that are built into some apps that are absolutely not evidence-based where they promote problematic behaviors. So in the context of when we're dealing with like mental health and psychiatry, I think it's super important as a provider to have an awareness to, you know, where, where the problems can arise and why I think it's so pivotal that they're not just, you take this and you do your own thing. It should be used in conjunction in that relationship because it's, 
it's no different than uh, sending them off with a medication. We need to inform them, make sure that we understand what the pros and cons are, barriers, mm-hmm. challenges. It is just like a medication or a psychotherapy that we're prescribing. But because we're so afraid of it, I think we don't we don't harness the the potential power that we have. Um, it's sort of like, well, if I don't ask, um, if I don't want anything to do with it, then I don't have to to worry about it. But our patients are still picking up these apps and using them. Right. So we right. Need to inform ourselves. Well, I, sorry, Chris. I mean, there's so, there's so, I mean, there's so many, there's some really big ones that are, it's almost like a consumer product, right? I mean, it's, it's their advertising on all the podcasts or they're on television and they've got uh, celebrity endorsers and I, you know, so, so, and you even talk in the article about, about the database in that, um, customer reviews are more about popularity than than they are necessarily about effectiveness so so how do you how do you i mean that marketing juggernaut how do you how do you manage to try to communicate to people um you careful you know being careful when you're up against a lot of that money and and marketing yeah yeah um so i usually start with the idea that um when you are going to be putting information into these apps, probably the most important thing is the idea of how is your information secured and protected? Because if I get into an app and they don't have some of those things that are updated regularly to kind of protect us, and it looks like someone is really keeping um, informed about making sure that the app has um, updates regularly, I start to feel like, okay, well, they're not invested in this in the way that I want them to be. It's sort of like, you know, you come out with the medication and nobody's really monitoring like what's happening and we're not tracking it. So same thing like with the apps is making sure that there's some engagement and some history there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because we have expertise, I can vet the material and really understand, are they applying some of the strategies that are in alignment with like cognitive behavioral skills? Um, so those are things that are helpful for me to kind of tease through if an app is beneficial or not. But I think, um, from an end user perspective, it's helpful to, I, I suggest that people look at the apps on a desktop computer prior to downloading them, see what they have to offer, see um, what sort of information you are giving the app privileges to have access to. Mm-hmm. Like uh, some of them will act, will say that I have a blanket access to all your contacts and your social media sort of interaction. And it's crazy to me. And before I got into this, I never really um, understood what we're kind of just entering in this sort of like disclaimer. But now even my girls, they're like, well, mom, I need you to look at this privacy policy before I download the latest, you know, TikTok app or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to inform people that that is a part of protection, just like yeah. you should be aware of your HIPAA compliance. You should be aware of what you're signing off for with these, with these apps too. Um, because it, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Uh, so we'll put the link to the database in, yeah. in, in the show notes so people can mm-hmm. check it out. But just to frame it for folks, uh, it, it, it's um, you, you can go into this database. And if I, if I want to filter the apps by this category, substance use, smoking and tobacco. Uh, now, Maggie, your app doesn't tell me how many results a search yields or a filter yields. I'll get you my punch list um, after, the, after the call. Um, but, but I'm estimating just by scrolling down, there's over 100 apps that have to do or make claims that they can help you quit smoking. 
which is phenomenal to me. Um, and, and, you know, the world of, of the technology and smartphones and apps, I mean, that data privacy thing is sort of universal, uh, I think. Uh, like, this is not new to these types of apps. But I'm wondering about the, the regulation that we or, or you are seeing in terms of the healthcare claims that these people are making. Is there is there someone is there a watchdog? Uh, you know, I don't know even who it would be. Yeah. No, no. I mean, like there are, are apps that go through an FDA approval, but that is very very limited amount of of apps. And um, in all honesty, because I I don't want to you know upset anyone, I have um, listened to information about how they're promoting these apps, and from just an evaluation perspective, you know. I think we have to be thoughtful about the cost of these things, like asking people, like I work with folks, again, that struggle economically. Like I can't write, um, I can't confidently write a prescription for an app that's going to be, you know, the car, the price of a car per month. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not really understanding how these apps, even if they have approvals, are incorporated into care because that's such a big piece of this is important. So with that um, database, it, helps us to sort of recognize the idea that one app is not going to meet the needs of everyone. And there isn't anybody that's like, like going through with a fine tooth comb for every single app that exists in all the play stores. So where do we kind of start? Um, and this is just kind of that beginning step of recognizing that this is a large pool of information and how can we sort of, um, just streamline the way that we access stuff because having the framework from the American Psychiatric Association, which is what this is part of this is based off of, um, is helpful, but I don't think it's as tangible as having, you know, if I want to have a smoking cessation app that allows me to track kind of my use and that's free, that doesn't require an annual subscription that has good privacy, you know, protections, then what kind of options do I have? Because if I Google that, I'm going to have a very different result list mm -hmm. than what I get right. when I go through this database where somebody has really looked at the app intricately. And I will tell you, without doing that for each individual app, you it is it just blows my mind what kind of information you can you can come up with without downloading every single app. Um, you know, just the variety that's there and some of the information that's just completely inaccurate. How many would you say we're dealing apps we're dealing with from a you know that you would view as mental health or mental wellness type? Well, apps? like they had, um, I think the one of the articles that I think John wrote was like about ten thousand mental health related apps. So I mean, mm -hmm. and then that who is defining that? Because right. most of the apps that are mental health sort of related are like health and wellness apps, so they're not mm -hmm. claiming to be medical. Um, sort of derivatives in the play stores or the apple stores their health and wellness but you know as a as a consumer i mean to me i'm like well somebody must have vetted that if it's like a health and wellness app and i'm sure they would have had experts but no it just means that it's not claimed as like a medical device in the same way that the other apps are that um go through that fda approval so it anybody can create it right so right. it's kind of scary so maggie um now, I wish we had more time with you. I'm already worried that we're going to run out of time and I'm going to have 17 questions. <laughs> so I am involved with... Do you want me to shut up so you can ask all your questions then? If you could, actually, yeah. if you could just go on mute, that'd be great. All right. All right. <laughs> um, I, um, 
I happen to be involved, and Sean uh, knows this group well, with uh, NAMI Chicago. You're probably mm -hmm. familiar with uh, um, and And there's a big trend in that I'm seeing through them, which is akin to some of the work that our men's group does, which is connectedness and peer support. Um, I'm wondering, uh, and I don't see a filter in your database for that type of thing. Has anyone is anyone trying that? Because then you're like, like, oh my God, here's a mental health app that's a social, you know, a social media app too. But I'm wondering if anyone's trying to bridge that gap. So the peer support, what I see happening in terms of the technology, are you're seeing folks that are really diving into the peer support and how can we help them sort of use technology to enhance their peer support um, capabilities. And then you see sort of this provider side of it where they are trying to focus on how to leverage the technology in that patient provider relationship. And even like in the research, you kind of see the people that are doing peer support technology research and provider patient technology research. So I think we're going to get there. I think it's just trying to figure out some people have really great peer support programs, but I will say like where I'm at in Nebraska, um, the peer support programs are super limited, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, because I think there's a huge value for them. So I think it's uh, depending on your landscape and what the priorities are, you're going to see how technology gets embedded with those systems that are really well-oiled machines or they are um, lacking. And so like I, I have had a complete interest in doing peer support technology related use, but I don't have a strong enough um, peer support group to even tap into to see what mm -hmm. that looks like. Hey, thanks for listening to If You've Come This Far. This episode is brought to you by Judson and Moore. Distillers of American Whiskey right here in Chicago. You can stop by their tasting room uh, located in their distillery uh, just on the west side of the Chicago River and just south of Belmont. And uh, you can grab a delicious cocktail, a bottle of single malts or bourbon or rye. And uh, on many nights, you can enjoy some fantastic music. They attract some great acts. Now back to the episode. When you, when did you decide to get into this field and did you think you would do it as a practitioner or the academic that seem that it seems like you're more of an academic now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I worked in the ICU in a trauma and transplant center for, oh, like close to 10 years. And okay. what was mind boggling to me is we would deal with all of these people that had these horrific comorbidities. I mean, trying to die on us every day, it was super stressful, but you give a physician or one of those ICU nurses, somebody that has a history or a previous diagnosis of schizophrenia, and they just like lose their minds. So they're like, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want any part of that. Like they, they hallucinate. So I don't know. I'm not doing that. So I just felt like, I don't understand the disconnect and like, what's the fear of this. Um, if you guys can manage all these really complicated things, why is this so different? So mm. I sort of became the person that always took anybody that had a psychiatric disorder, regardless if they were tubed or vented or, you know, dealing with transplant stuff. I always took them because I just felt like this is fascinating to me. Um, and my parents give me a little bit of grief because they're like, well, you know, a lot of people that go into psychiatry, they usually have a story. My story is that I had such a lovely childhood that I could not imagine how to navigate this world not having had that. And, you know, just the resiliency that a person has to have. And we, you know, stigmatize folks and we expect these little kids to grow up and be these well-developed human beings, but we never even gave them a fighting chance. 
Um, and so it has just sort of been something that I have loved, um, trying to figure out how we improve care. And if I wanted to get into it for the money, you know, I would do private practice, but, Mm. um, I, I love the idea of teaching other people how to, how to do this work. And like I said, before COVID, I was, we were really talking about how to bridge this equity gap and how do we really help people take care of themselves without asking them to come to the doctor every two weeks or, um, you know, how can we leverage having the information that they have a smartphone, but they can't, they don't have a car. What do we do with that? Mm, Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because like you said two things that illustrate, I think, um, that we're in the early days of our understanding of mental health. One is your parents. My parents would have said the same thing. Oh, that guy's a psychiatrist or even a psychologist. You know, look, <laughs> give them a wide berth. Um, and the other is the nurses, right? Like the idea that we, I mean, we relatively, we understand broken bones and lacerations and bleeding out and cancer much better than we understand mental illness, uh, which I suspect is one of the reasons everyone was like, oh, yeah. um, you, you, Maggie, you go deal with the person who's, who's uh, unstable or whatever. Anyway, I'll, I'll shut up for well, no, and- no, no. And I, and, and I would ask Maggie, I mean, arguably don't, don't we still look at physical health saying, okay, well you can see that. I mean, I got a broken arm or, or, you know, yeah. I have cancer or whatever, but mental health is almost arguably a personal failing at some level. Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, what well, would you say, Maggie? Um, I mean, I, my hope is that we will understand that it's, it's not a weakness. It's not some intentional thing. It's not something we forgot, you know, to take care of. Yeah. It is a, uh, part of our way, our brains are so complicated and we have all this information coming in all the time. And sometimes our brains just don't even know what to do with it. And these are the the consequences, unfortunately. I mean, we're seeing that with people that are trying to go back to work um, and not being able to do so in the same capacity, because I don't even think they had an awareness to everything we're asking people to do. You got to work full time. You got to be a full time Mm -hmm. parent. Um, You have to manage all your schedule, all your kids schedule. And we want you to be accessible on your email 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't sleep, work out, you know, look great, (laughs) you know, be a family person. I mean, it's kind of ludicrous what we ask people to do, but don't, don't get depressed, don't get anxious mm-hmm. and concentrate and stay on task and get good sleep. You know, yeah. like that's impossible yeah. to do all right. those things. Yeah. yeah. And don't have a cocktail, do all that. Don't have a cocktail. So, so Maggie, you, you mentioned, you started talking about the peer group and the leveraging technology for peer group. And I'm curious if you have, uh, I think when we talked the first time, you said you you actually do some of your sessions via telehealth. I, I think you said that. And so so my question, we talk a lot about um, utilizing the, the technology platform for engagement. I mean, we have men from all over the world that are they're coming into our spaces for connection. Um, but then there's a group that says, you know what, it's it's great, but it's not as good as being in person. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's an argument for that. But but from an effectiveness standpoint, um, in doing your work, I mean, could you do a peer group virtually, you know, virtually through a Zoom platform? And and how's the effectiveness as you do one-on-one kind of telehealth engagement with your clients as well? So I work in an integrated environment, which means that I am embedded in a primary care clinic. 
Um, this goes back to the idea that I don't think psychiatry and medicine should be separated. I think they should go together. Um, and what I do is I provide support through psychiatric consulting to the primary care providers right. of who are you comfortable that you think you could manage in this clinic. And if I hold your hand and I tell you what I would do, how I would prescribe all of these things, would you be willing to kind of continue taking care of that person? Um, because I'd also like you to make sure that we're checking their blood pressures and their labs and do all this stuff. And so, um, because I have somebody who is laying eyes on them in person, I feel extremely comfortable mm -hmm. seeing them via telehealth because okay. um, it is, it's something that I don't feel like I have to lay eyes on them directly. I will get that communication with that primary care provider. I think we're still figuring out what's the What's the minimum requirement that you should meet with somebody in person um, versus, you know, how many times do we deliver telehealth and then require you to, you know, to come in? I, I don't think we know all of the answers with that, but okay. I certainly think like I've had people call me on their work break you know, and they're in their car and they're not driving. I mean, I have had some people try to drive and I'm like, we have to stop and, you know, I'll, I'll know if you're driving, uh, but so they'll call me on their phone and I'm like, this is so convenient that you can connect with me. I can do an evaluation. You're not waiting six months to see somebody. And then when they can schedule a time that works for them, they will follow up with their primary care provider. But I feel like we have really leveraged the idea of improving access through that. Um, okay. And yes, I think groups can be conducted um, via telehealth. I think they should be on some instances where it makes sense. Um, it's all about accessibility, but we also have to remember that there are policies behind the reimbursement for a lot of this stuff. Right. And although we hear value-based care, there's not enough money, I don't think, behind it to really um, reinforce that doing well and providing quality care is um, enough of an incentive for organizations right now. It's mm -hmm. still a challenge. Mm -hmm. Well, and with 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 more demand than supply, the technology technology also becomes a way of leveraging the supply to a right. certain extent, right? right. Because yeah. you could just use it more effectively, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of, I'll be honest, I was a little bit scared to death uh, at the beginning to do telehealth because I had not ever done that. But then I'm like, what profession probably is the ideal? It's psychiatry to be doing yeah, these visits. Yeah. Yes. And I think folks that probably never would have come into the office to see me, even though I'm in the primary care clinic, I don't advertise that I'm there. I don't make it known that they're coming into a psychiatry office. I'm literally in the same little place that all the PCPs are. Um, but there are still some folks that just the idea of them coming into the office to see somebody in psychiatry is um, it's going to be off putting for them. But if they call me on their you know lunch break from work, they do. And yeah. mm -hmm. um, that's nice, I think, to see that because those are people that may not have ever gotten care. Yeah. Yeah. I've used um, Talkspace, which is, I think, one of the more notable um, mm -hmm. apps. And, and so I think based on what my experience, I think that they're working with ins some insurance providers. Mm -hmm. um, as a business person, um, I, I, you know, it makes sense to me, right? Like we can let, you know, someone doesn't have to go into the office. There's more time to, to, to be a therapist, et cetera. Um, and I also have a therapist in my band who says it will never be the same as when you're sitting in the same room a, a, as a patient. Right. Um, but, uh, 
part of my issue with this is that the benefits of that increased efficiency don't accrue to the provider, right? They're, they're, they're accruing to the app owner. Uh, otherwise, I think I think the doctors would be more behind it. Is that am I off base there? Well, we um, oftentimes are dealing with like time, like the amount of time that we're that's how we sort of are accountable is we bill based on the number of minutes that we typically are engaging with a patient. Some yeah. of that occurs before the visit. Some of that occurs during the visit. Some of it's in coordinating stuff afterwards. So I think it's about the provider being informed about what's happening um, and how to make sure that they're accountable for that. But my hope is that, you know, when we're providing really good quality care and we can demonstrate that it won't matter if I spend 15 minutes with person X and then, you know, an hour and a half with person Y, if I'm demonstrating that my care is effective, great. Um, but I would say with some of those, um, like with the apps that offer, you know, therapy resources, I guess I struggle with as a clinician, how do I vet that that person isn't just sort of touting that they are, you know, providing these specific modalities um, and they're like a a guru at everything under the sun, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's possible. Like the therapists that I work with and, you know, that I've developed relationships with, they have like, they're really good at marriage and family counseling, or they're really good at EMDR or they're really good at CBT. Um, They aren't experts at everything. And so sometimes when I look at those like laundry lists of of therapists, when I'm looking for specific um, modalities Mm -hmm. for disorders, I'm like, how how can you really be up to date every year for all the educational requirements for, you know, 15 different psychotherapies? I just Mm -hmm. don't think that's that's possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I worry a little bit about that. That makes sense. Um... Maggie, can you remind me of your title at UN, UNMC? UNMC. <laughs> so I'm an assistant professor, but um, I have my doctorate in nursing practice. So um, I went and got my bachelor's in nursing, then I got my master's, and then wasn't enough. So I went and finally just got my doctorate. So I think yeah, I'm no, done I, now. <laughs> no, no, you should be done. First of all, because that should cost a lot of money. Um, but, um, I, but am I misremembering? Was there a, a, a part of your title that had to do with integrative medicine or is that? Uh... Yeah. So that's an additional sort of specialty. So I did some uh, additional training to work in integrated care. And so uh, because I was the first nurse practitioner to do integrated care at um, uh-huh. the organization I'm at. So I felt like because I'm a little... Uh, I would say meticulous about how I do my work. I went and took some additional training from the University of Washington and the APA, and then um, just really jumped in feet first. I'm like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this well, and Mm -hmm. I'm going to help some people. So, um, and now I'm working on, you know, finding ways to treat, train people how to do integrated care, because in my mind, it is a specialty to help use that Mm -hmm. medical and psychiatric integration in a way that makes sense and know yeah. when, when what's appropriate to to be occurring in the primary care and what's not. Yeah. Well, and 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 this is where I wanted to go because this is another angle into healthcare for technology, which is my, my I know very little. I, I have a very rudimentary understanding of what integrative medicine means. But my sense is that for us to integrate different modes or different specialties of practice, there has to be an underlying patient information system. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like we have to be able to we we can't be emailing somebody and saying so and so came to me with this. Right. There has to be something more efficient. Um, is that um, do you feel like the last time I experienced this was 
15 years ago when my, no, less than that. Well, at one point we were in Lurie Children's Hospital, Chicago, very reputable children's hospital. And there was like the nurse carrying around the old envelope with her notes on it about what medication had been given when there squarely was a patient information system on the computer there. How do we do it on that front while, while we're at it? And that's kind of what I wanted to check the integrative medicine part of your title. Here's my problem with what happens. Um, we all have different ways and unique ways of documenting and thinking that we are consistent in what's available and where it's accessible in the records. And it is not, it is not that way. I mean, um, I have a group of primary care providers that I work with and they each put certain things in certain places and I have to know who, who is putting it where, like they get gene site testing done, which is like genetic um, testing that sometimes I will ask to have done to inform medication decision-making. And um, some will put it in labs, some will scan it in media documents, some will never put it in the record and they just have a mm -hmm. paper copy somewhere. It's, it's crazy. So mm -hmm. um, that part is, we have this mass amount of information, but it is not streamlined in a way that anybody can walk in and know what's going on. Hmm. So I think that comes under like a provider preference and getting on the bandwagon of like, this is important to everybody do it a consistent way. Um, interestingly enough, uh, in one of the departments that I have uh, interaction with, they wanted to streamline how people, like what sort of the components of the documentation were including like how maybe they would do suicide assessments. And there was this big uproar that like, you know, I wanted to have my note the way that I want it because that makes the most sense to me. I don't want to do it the way that everybody else does it. And I'm like, I, I just don't, I don't think you understand like the value that everybody being able to find the information the same way, how that can help as opposed I mean, to like the inconvenient. Hard to believe we're in 2022 and we're still so far away from cracking that nut. Yeah. because it seems all important. Um, Sean, can I ask one more? Yep. One more nerd question. Go for it. Yeah. So um, so I'm a data person, love the database. Um, uh, I, I, I crave more. I, 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 you know, in a perfect world, Maggie, you would tell me which app to choose, right? Or, or, or you would rank them somehow. Um, I know that you... Um, invite people to complete a survey after they've used a certain app. So my first question, first part of the question is, how much of that data have you gathered? So people reporting back to you uh, using your survey on the apps. Second part of the question is, should we still consider as one of multiple measures, the star ratings in Apple App Store, whatever it's called? Okay. Like, how, do, how are we gonna know? And of course, and with any mental illness, like the metrics for success are, are so, nebulous in the first place, but, but what can, how can you reassure me on this front? Well, um, what I would say is that the reviews, like the star reviews, I would just take that with a grain of salt on the fact that it is very easy for us to influence how those ratings get, get put, um, put in there. And so if you have the economic backing to be able to really promote something, I mean, that's going to be the way that it gets influenced. And it doesn't speak to maybe the, the evidence or the success of it. it. It just can speak to sort of like the monetary um, ability that a person has to promote that. Yep. In terms of the, you know, being able to participate in the Mind Apps database there, I will be frank with you, John deals with that side of it. Um, and has a lot of, he has a research team 
And so my assumption is um, that they probably have, like, if people want to participate, then they uh, will vet that and, and get an idea about um, how how capable that person is, and then be able to sort of um, probably do a double checking in, in that system. And ideally, I think, like, John and I would love to be able to say, like, this is the app for you. But if we could do that, we wouldn't have to worry about sustainability or engagement or any of those things. We would, again, I think it would be one app and it would work great for every person. Um, but what we know is most people only use apps for about two weeks. Um, wow. Yeah. So that is why it is so crucial not to wow. just sort of like sign it off for an yeah. app, like a prescription and never follow up on it, never do anything. Like it needs to be embedded in care. And when it is, it can be very successful, but you also need to be able to like, let's say I start with an app today and I tell a patient, I'd like you to do the CBT skills in this app. And we do that for like four weeks and they're better. But I feel like they're really not developing an insight about like where their symptoms, like I need them to track some of that stuff. Maybe that app that I gave it the first time doesn't have those tracking symptoms that I think would be a good fit. So I need to be comfortable switching to another app and mm -hmm. saying, you know, I want you to track your yeah. symptoms in this app. So it. I think just like being flexible with other things, this is something that we need to be flexible in and recognizing mm -hmm. that I don't need an app to have five stars to have a good mood tracker. Um, and there are fitness apps that have a significant amount of behavioral strategies embedded in them that are very much in alignment with what we do for mental health that mm -hmm. don't get sort of labeled as a mental health app. You know, so understanding that there are resources there that are already linked to our watches, our phones that, you know, we're probably familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so valuable to have, have um, somebody you trust tell you that this is, you know, this is a good app. You'll, you'll be good. Go, yeah. go work with this app and then check in, check in with me in a month. Yes. Um, yeah. That's really powerful. Yeah. And I think like, I would feel comfortable doing that with apps that I'm familiar with, but I'm not yeah. going to be comfortable doing that with an app that like someone gave me a five-star rating on and I've never downloaded it. I've not played with it. Right. It's like, you need to know what the capacity and the capability is of these apps. So like you can inform like what you're asking the patient to do. The other part is like some people apps, I, in my mind are an extension of uh, empowering a person to self-manage like yeah. what tools can we give them to enable them to do that? Some people are very like proactive. They're already doing some things. So they're going to require very different features than somebody who is like, I just got told that I have depression. I have no idea what that means. So right. the app resources that that person would need are not going to be like goal setting and, you know, um, right. like super behavioral activation. It's more like, what is, what is depression? How can mm -hmm. I start those, you know, the steps to understanding this? And then we move along that trajectory. But like, you can't dump everything in the kitchen sink on somebody that is not even in the place of understanding, you know, how do I even start helping myself? Yeah. I have a, uh, again, a supply demand question. So um, there's a proposal that's been made that children under eight, all children under eight should be screened for anxiety. Um, I think it's children over or eight to 12 or older than 12 screened for depression. I think it's even, it's even gone to say all adults should be pre-screened or screened yeah. for anxiety and depression. Um, reaction to, to this proposal and how From it would be done. From a personal or a 
provider. However you want to go, Maggie. <laughs> however you however you want to take and it. And Sean, whose proposal is this? I don't know. This is that. uh who's it from, Maggie? It's the um so currently, uh, United States Preventive Services Task Force. Yeah. Um so there is some history behind this of primary care providers, and this is no fault of their own, but you know, most people are accessing their mental health treatment with primary care, okay, because there aren't enough of us. Um, and they are so limited in their time that we're asking them to do literally everything in the kitchen sink, do wellness, do all these like not like specialty services in, you know, this very limited time frame. And so there's a, this idea of making them sort of be more efficient and like triggering them to like really identify some of these things that are problematic, like the PHQ-9s and the GAD-7s that are being used. I mean, I am not aware of a clinic that is not using those, at least to my knowledge. What are what are those? And those are depression screening and okay. um, anxiety screenings that should be done on an annual basis. Okay. Now, when they get those things done, it doesn't require exactly what the course of action is. Um, and so sometimes they're like, okay, check that off the list, but we aren't really doing a whole heck of a lot about it. Or you're not really that depressed, are you? Is kind of the line of questioning. And mm -hmm. so that is um, a way of not validating the, that this person has now you know, really screened for, for positive um, depression or anxiety, and, and we're not handling it the right way, which is why I am where I'm at is I provide that specialty service of you have a positive screen and you don't know what to do. Come see me. I will help you um, because they're just not equipped to, to handle all that stuff. And now I've given them enough education, the primary care providers where they are empowered and they can take those first steps, mm -hmm. but that took a minute for us to get there. Yeah. Um, from a parent perspective, I will say that I, one of my kiddos went for one of the required checkups and, um, I guess coming from psychiatry, I assumed at some point I would be asked to, you know, to leave the room and that they would ask those sort of sensitive questions. Okay. And at no point in time, did that person ever ask me to leave the room so they could interview my child, mm -hmm. um, never asked them about abuse, did not ask them about their mood, did not mm -hmm. ask them about anxiety. And I'm thinking, how did you kind of discern that that wasn't necessary? I mean, what, just because I look like maybe I'm not abusing my child, you decided not to ask my kid those mm -hmm. questions, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I, if she doesn't want to tell me because she knows what I do, I want her to know that there's somebody else who's going to ask her that it's not just her mom that asks her, how is she feeling today? Mm -hmm. um, has she ever had thoughts of wanting to hurt herself? Because we know kids are seeing things on social media. They are experiencing this sexual development that is so much bigger than what they are mentally prepared for that somebody needs to be asking these questions. So mm -hmm. I guess from that, I, I was upset. So I did call the organization. I'm like, listen, why are you guys not checking on these kiddos? Yeah. Um, like, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but like, this is a big deal. How old's your daughter? 12. 12. 12. And I, yeah. I just assumed at some point, like at 12, we know that kids are using substances. Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. And we know that there are a significant amount of kids that during the pandemic that were getting resources that were no longer getting those things that probably were subjected to a sick amount of abuse because they had no recourse. They couldn't go to school. They were stuck at mm -hmm. home. Right. Right. So 
Yeah. As a mother, I'm very passionate about that because I just was, I was disappointed. Yeah. So not knowing how they do, not, not knowing well how they would do the screening. I, I, part of me worries that when you go looking for something that may not be there, you, you find something. And so now if you make it a, let's say mandatory thing, yeah. um, does that be in, begin to create the problem at all? So um, I worry less about that, especially because the screeners that they're utilizing in these clinic uh, capacities have been vetted and are, are okay. validated and are less likely to have this sort of false positive. And I think the thing is to remember, it's not diagnostic. It's a tool just like anything else. Like they, you know, go through a cardiovascular history, who sort of screens at high risk and how do we intervene? Okay. So like with kids, they're getting this information from the internet already. People are yeah. talking about yeah. it. They are like this, this language exists so much earlier now. So to not have an opportunity to ask those questions or at least be able to screen for the presence of those things in a in a healthcare environment, I think is it's a it's a missed opportunity to help these kids before they get sick, mm-hmm. like really sick. Mm-hmm. I was I was gonna make a dad joke. Uh, about how what I was going to ask you what you're going to do when you're done with this little project that you're working on. Um, but I suspect that if you wanted to do this for the rest of your career, you could. Um, but but are are there other areas of, of the mental health space that you're drawn to right now? Other problems in the way we provide this care? Um, so postpartum depression is a huge thing for, for me. I feel like um, we... We ask moms to, you know, follow up with their OBGYN about six weeks out, and then we have them um, take the the baby to these well child checks. And even in the clinic that, um, well, in some of the clinics that I've asked specifically, how are you? So mom comes in with baby, and how are you assessing that mom for her mental well being to care for this child? And typically, what I get is, well, I ask, you know, you're not, you know, how are you doing with the baby? You're not having problems with sleeping, or you know, you're not having any any issues. And and like they sort of like lead the mom into guilting yeah. her to like have a, yeah. a, a a response, like, okay, well, I'm not supposed to feel this way because I'm supposed to be happy that I had this baby, yeah. and yeah. you know, um, and I feel like moms are so dedicated to taking care of themselves that we need to meet them with where they're where they're at. So we need to meet them at those well child visits and. Um, be able to provide that care and those resources, recognizing that they are not getting out and doing things. They're like worried about like breastfeeding and like trying to get some laundry done and sleeping every once in a while. Um, And we don't have a, not every place has a perinatal psychiatry department. So I think there's a big opportunity for, for helping the moms and babies by recognizing where they're accessing treatment. And then I think ADHD is not something that, um, you know, it doesn't, we don't, necessarily grow out of it. It changes sort of how it presents mm-hmm. um, because we've become aware that you can't be, you know, jumping all over the place. And um, we have social cues that are informing our, our presentation. And um, from a psychiatry perspective, and I'll just speak for myself, it's pretty straightforward treating and it feels mm-hmm. good because people get on the right medication. They do amazing. Um and so like if I were a PCP, what would I rather prescribe a mood stabilizer for somebody that has, you know, bipolar disorder that I'm uncomfortable managing or ADHD that I, you know, do refills and uh, they're good to go and they're happy with their treatment because they show up because they know they need their medicine. Uh-huh. Um, so those are two areas that I, I guess I'm 
I feel like we could make a, a big impact. I was going to say, speaking of medicine, do you do you have a perspective on psychedelics for treatment of mental health? So I am all for understanding the 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 way that these things can influence how we um, understand the psychiatric conditions. I feel like there's still so much left to be understood with how the brain responds to that. But if there's mm-hmm. a way to help somebody that has, I would say PTSD is probably one of the yeah. harder things. Yeah. To sort of, I feel like my repertoire for medications is is limited um, mm-hmm. because there's just so much that goes into that. That it would be nice to know if there are things that we could, I guess, inform the medications that we have available. So, um, I I still feel like I am at a limited knowledge base with that. I'm kind of mm-hmm. waiting to see what happens with the research and what happens with, with people that have a, a positive response or, you know, any response and what that looks like. Yeah. I, I feel like I've heard the argument be made, like that we look at ketamine, right? Like mm-hmm. I've heard people make the argument that ketamine, and these are my words. So I don't know mm-hmm. if these are even mean anything in your world, but like ketamine can be a corrective medication versus like a maintenance medication like Prozac or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that the um, is that sort of the party line of of the proponents of of ketamine and other psychedelics? So I think the the thing that occurs in in psychiatry is there are people that are responsive, like the majority of the population, you know, will be responsive to these sort of oldies but goodies some medications that have been around for a long time but and that should be like like, like, like cigarettes like cigarettes <laughs> like fluoxetine or... <laughs> Sorry. No, no, you're fine um so there are you know why are we not offering the things that are affordable that we know have demonstrated efficacy okay because yeah. i think that's important that we don't just shortchange people but there are a lot of folks that because we have not been able to address these things early on. And because we know that there are numerous uh, neurotransmitters that are involved in in depression, that we have to come up with more innovative ways to hit those transmitters, but not cause this myriad of like horrible side effects, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think like any of these innovations, there are pros and cons. I mean, having to go in and get uh, a ketamine infusion, you know, that that affects a person's life. But if they are non-functional without that, um, you know, what are, what are the pros and cons, the risks and benefits right. of those things? Yeah. And I don't know that anybody's saying you take this ketamine and like it's, you're cured. Um, mm-hmm. I think there, I don't, administer ketamine. So I can't say that I'm up to date on the latest and greatest with the research, but um, if it provides some relief for a person who otherwise has not been able to get that from all these ridiculous med checks that we do like on and on and on for years, like that is crazy to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So as a provider, I feel like we need to be informed about the options so we can tell patients, like I will tell patients, you know, it looks like you've tried numerous options and I don't know if, you know, these are the other sort of like more innovative ways that we can address um, your your uh, mental health, like ECT or TMS or some of these newer agents. So put it all on the table. You may not be the person that's administering it, but at least be able to like not just stick to like one or two meds and well, that's all I got in my toolbox because, mm-hmm. you know, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, 
I will say one of my professional mantras has always been, if it seems like there ought to be a better way, there almost certainly is these days. I, 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 I am encouraged uh, by meeting you and, and talking to someone who is, who is just like constantly on the lookout for a better way um, and, and, and scrutinizing all the better ways that people are out there promoting via smartphones and everything mm-hmm. else. So mm-hmm. um, thank you for, for the work you're doing. That's for sure. Well, Maggie, there's, there are, there is this one little last detail. Um, we have to ask you three canned questions. Um, right. We do, right, Sean? Like she's not yes. off the hook. You didn't like. No, no. Didn't, that's right. She didn't. Everybody that comes on, all right, gets your gets your three questions, Chris. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, Maggie, what do you wish you could have told your ten year old self? Oh, that uh, that you really can accomplish the things that that you want to, and don't be afraid. Awesome. And you can, and you can do it all from Omaha, right? Right. Oh, I, okay. I will say (laughs) that having worked with people at Stanford and Harvard, and I am in this Midwest thing, I was scared to death. Like I am in Nebraska, like there's no way we're keeping up. And I will tell you, we are absolutely on par. And I came back and told my research team, I'm like, you would not believe it. Like we are doing what the yes. East Coast and the West Coast yes. are doing. And these are Ivy yeah. Leaguers. Yeah. Right. Screw right. those guys at Harvard. Right. Yeah. Harvard. I was so right. excited. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're not just a flyover state, right? Right. Like I'm from Ohio. So <laughs> right. We used to be known for the football, but that's really taken a That it has. Um, okay, Maggie, a second question. Do you have a mantra in life or even a mantra these days? Um, I mean, I would say with my, um, with my kids that the biggest thing is, um, I don't know if it's a mantra, but the thing that I, you're never going to hurt yourself by going to school, like just keep going and try and like keep learning. And it is the one thing that I will say has been significantly beneficial for, for me. And I just want them, if there's one thing that they choose to do, it's, really value the idea of education and keep going when um when you figure out how to get them to listen to that loud and clear you just shoot me a shoot me a text and let me know how you did it okay um that'd be great thank you um last question um what do you hope that and this is we go a little bit darker here but what do you hope that people will say about you at your wake um Gosh, that is a, I think that she's a genuine person who really, I I practice what I I preach and um, that I really did give a crap about mental health and Mm. that um, people are important. So I love that. We can, we can just we can just add. She gave a crap to your. To yeah. your right. Yeah. Great. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I wasn't sure about you know language and all the you know preparing oh, yeah. here, oh, but uh, yeah. yeah. You're all oh. good, Maggie. So nice to meet you. Thanks. For, yeah. Thanks for joining us. Sure thing. It was yeah. it was lovely to talk about all this stuff. So thank you for you know inviting me. You're doing you're doing great work, and uh, we're really glad you had the time to talk with us. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org.